You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast, episode 190. As 200 approaches, we are within a spitting distance, I think. Also, this is the last episode of this spring semester. I suppose we'll have some plans for summer episodes, which we can talk about towards the end of the podcast. I'm David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. And with me this morning is Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in Minnesota. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm pretty good, David. How about you? Uh, pretty decent. End of, I mean, end of semester things aside. I mean, I know that whenever faculty talk to each other in this semester or at the, at the end of a semester, any kind of "I'm doing fine" has an asterisk next to it. Well, I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm just open openly uh, senile at, at the end of the semester. I, I, I you know I can barely. This is why our our last episode of the year is usually something light. Like yeah. we should be doing an episode on those those caramel candies with the dry, the powdered milk inside, instead of this very <laughs> arduous essay by Simone Vey. So thanks for that, David. You're welcome. Well, we can an talk essay, about- by the way, about attention. Something I definitely could not pay to it at the end of the semester. Excellent. Well, we can talk about Werther's next year. Um. <laughs> Or in the fall, I guess. Uh, the, the the chuckling voice is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. So we're going to do a Goethe episode next next semester? <laughs> yeah. That, no, I, thank you, Grubbs. Oh, I get it. Just, I, get <laughs> I was going to say, listeners, if, if you got that joke, then you're uh, truly an insider Christian humanist. But... Yeah, I'm doing all right. Uh, end of semester brain. I'm actually not too far off from getting the grading part done, but the uh, institutional assessment still looms large. It's important Exciting. stuff, though. Oh, man. I, 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 I figured out that uh, I think I generate somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 pages of reports every May. Mm. I, uh, you oh. know, I was with uh, the Sectarian Review's Danny Anderson last week at a conference, and uh, we were talking about uh, accreditation and and uh, th- that stuff and uh, uh, known Marxist Danny Anderson said we should abolish the Department of Education just to get rid of outcomes assessment. <laughs> well, you know the numbers ain't nothing till you crunch them. Um, when, you, when you've got a hammer, all the world's a nail, huh? <laughs> so speaking of uh, sectarian reviews, Danny Anderson, uh, what what podcast news do we want to? talk about before we move on to uh, the rest of our show. Uh, There should be a new Christian feminist podcast on your phone. If there's not, you should go download it right now uh, or get a phone. Uh, Let's see (laughs) here. There is, trying to think, will there be another pietist schoolman by the time we record this? No, there won't be, uh, but I imagine there's one coming soon. Chris uh, doesn't gather much moss. No, man, he's he's been just churning them out. And then sometime in the early summer, there should be a uh, Christian Humanist Profiles or three. Uh, yeah, here I'm, at the I'm end reading of the three books right now myself. So. Yeah, I've, I've got a pair of them. So, I mean, it's just end of semester, folks. Uh, yeah. We Christian Humanists don't stop being academics. And the, <laughs> you know, the line, April is the cruelest month, uh, got funnier uh, when academics got a hold of it. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, also keep paying attention to City of Man. Um, I really enjoyed their liberalism episode and um, can't, uh, looking forward to whatever uh, what, what they do next. But as we learn, you should only pay attention to it because ultimately that means you're paying attention to God, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but, but that's 
that's that's where we're going to work towards in this conversation. Uh, as Michael has been alluding to, we are looking today at uh, Simone Weil's uh, Right Use of School Studies, is our abbreviated version. The full title is Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God. Uh, so you'll see why I have been routinely abbreviating it. She's got that 17th century nostalgia. <laughs> uh, I haven't seen the title in French. Um, I imagine that it, uh, I, I don't know if it's if the language is any tighter there, but it probably sounds prettier. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's rare for the French language to be more concise than the English language. <laughs> Excellent. Not they, impossible, they never, but rare. They never had their Hemingway. Camus is their Hemingway, but just the, the structure of the language. It's more complicated, I think. Well, uh, the the first time I floated this episode topic, Michael, uh, I don't know if you remember it, but you made a quip uh, about uh, Simone Weil from, if I recall, another Simone. Um, also, the author this time is French. So I figure you're the right guy to tell us about her life and her associations. Um, who are we reading today? Well, she was kind of a wunderkind, to use another language, and I'm not sure if that <laughs> only applies to male children or not. But she she um she was almost superhumanly educated by the time she entered what would be considered high school. And mm. uh, the quip you're talking about, I assume, is Simone de Beauvoir calling her the Red Virgin. Yes, that was Beauvoir and Sartre's nickname for Vey, uh, the the Red Virgin. <laughs> Uh, and and at least part of that has to do with her superhuman ability to concentrate and to learn. And so they were all at the École Normale Supérieure together. And she finished first in the exam, and Beauvoir finished second. So that should uh, that that should that should give you some idea of how incredibly intelligent and focused this woman was. Mm. Like Beauvoir, oh, hang on, I don't want to say that because I'm not sure it's true. I, I don't think Beauvoir was raised agnostic. <laughs> Vey was definitely raised agnostic, but unlike Beauvoir, she had a religious conversion. Um, and actually, it seems to be kind of a series of religious conversions where she gets closer and closer. Uh, she becomes a kind of semi-Catholic, but she won't ever actually join the Catholic Church because she respects other religions too much to do that. And most famously, she becomes very involved in workers' rights movements, um, famously like going to work at a factory and refusing to live any higher than the lowest factory workers in France did. And in fact, she died relatively young, and it's because, among other things, during World War II, she decided to live on the same amount of food that people got in occupied France, even though she was not in occupied France. And so uh, she became very weak and, and died from that. So that's Simone Weil. She is famous on the one hand for her um, 20th century mysticism, we might call it, and on the other hand for her, her deep, deep commitment to progressive causes. So you can see, I think, why Sartre and Beauvoir would admire her and fear her at the same time. I think she she... She, she is in the same circle as them, at least in some of the same circles, but then in other senses she's quite different from them. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure Beauvoir didn't love being beaten in the, uh, in the exam. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, this is the first Vey I've ever read. She, she's, very, she's very hip right now in, in Christian academic circles. Uh, mm -hmm. nary, nary an issue of books and culture gets published without mentioning Simone Vey in some way. Um, she is mm -hmm. very, very trendy right now, uh, which is not me putting her down or the people who like her, but it is to say this is the only Vey I've ever read, so I'm by no means an expert on her. Nathan, do you know more than I do? Uh, no, I do not, and I'll admit that uh, I saw that you got that question and uh, did a small dance before I set back to grading. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured that would be a, an easier one to tee up for you, Michael, than than than, uh, than otherwise. Well, at least get to um, call her the Red Virgin, which is always fun. Yeah. I have to say, Beauvoir yeah. had a nickname, too, which is The Beaver. Oh, heavens. Yeah, uh, because her name looks like Beaver and because she worked very hard. 
That's what Sartre called her. And if you read his notebooks, that is the only thing he refers to her as, the beaver. Did did he leave it to her? Uh, Oh. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm a dad. I can do that. I can make dad jokes. (laughs) I tell my students that constantly. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I was attracted to this particular essay, one, because it's in uh, the anthology of uh, essays in that we use in our comp classes at HBU. There's a, a, a section on uh, Christians and academia and, and perspectives on, on school, school studies. And this is, uh, this is one of the, one of the essays that's, that's in that anthology. And it, and it's one that you'll find uh, often kind of cited in, in those kinds of things, along with Dorothy Sayers, lost tools and, it's 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 one of those kinds of essays. Cardinal Newman's mm-hmm. idea of the university. Uh, it's one of those. So I figured, you know, that's that's our wheelhouse, right? So we ought to we ought to say some things about it. But for readers who aren't familiar with the essay, they would probably be surprised where Vey starts her discussion on the right school of studies. She starts by defining prayer, and it's a weird definition. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about prayer and, and this idea of attention for the rest of the show. But I think, Nathan, uh, I, our listeners would benefit if you could give us some conceptual and maybe some historical background to understand the mystical perspective that Vey is taking in this essay. Because this is not, um, this is not your Jabez prior style prayer. This is not your, uh, could, could, uh, I want to lift up my, my, my great aunt's trick knee Lord, prayer. Lord, we just want to <laughs> lift yeah, up my yeah. great aunt's Lord, her trick knee, Lord, <laughs> Father God. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Now, uh, first of all, just in case you missed, uh, Grubbs giving the answer in the question, uh, they defines prayer as attention. Uh, it is a very simple, uh, you know, X equals Y definition. The rest of the essay goes on to sort of unfold that. So we're going to be talking about that at some length. The background for this, um, it's really easier to come at it from the angle of why her conception of prayer differs, uh, so significantly from what a lot of us come to, including myself. Mm -hmm. When we, Think of prayer in evangelical circles. It's the sort of thing that uh, David and Michael were just uh, lampooning. Uh, It's a notion that rises up largely in 19th century uh, revivalist movements, although certainly there are, uh, you know, predecessors to that. But it's a notion that prayer is basically a conversational activity, that whatever comes to your mind, uh, you should speak out loud to God. Although, of course, as many people have studied, it does take on its own conventions, its own expectations, so on and so forth as it goes on. It also differs from what I've been in the presence of a fair bit over the last seven years that I really wasn't all that familiar with from my seminary years or my formal study, um, namely the sort of spirit church prayer uh, that has more of a performative force to it. In other words, uh, it's not speaking a word over somebody or speaking a word of knowledge or something like that. Instead, this is the sort of thing that I, I see, and David, I'll, I'll, I'll be kicking it back to you because I have a hunch I've got a blind spot here, mm. but I don't think of it as mainly associated with the medieval mystics so much as I think of it as being associated with medieval practices of Bible reading, mm. uh, later on with Jesuit uh, spiritual exercises. And it's the notion that, and also I, I should go ahead and mention this because otherwise I'll get uh, Orthodox converts writing in. Uh, and also with the uh, Our Father prayer in the Orthodox tradition. And the Jesus and this, prayer. Oh, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. The Jesus prayer. My apology. I'm still going to get them writing in. It's, <laughs> it's my lot in life to uh, irritate Orthodox converts. But, and um, certain Patripassianism. I'll yeah. stop it. Anyway, <laughs> I, I cannot be held responsible for uh, inadvertent heresy this late in the semester, Grubs. But um, yeah, I think bro, I accidentally prayed to Bale the other day. <laughs> oh, so knock tired. it off, <laughs> <laughs> jerks! Uh, so, listeners, back to the topic at hand. Uh, what we get in those practices of lectio divina of the spiritual exercises uh, is a prayer that is 
fairly ritualized. It generally speaking has prescribed words, a prescribed rhythm, prescribed phrasing, so on and so forth. And the point of this prayer is not to communicate the contents of my interior life out loud, you know, to God first and foremost, but also for the benefit of those assembled, as it often is in evangelical Protestant prayer. But instead, the point of this prayer is to order the mind, to discipline it, to um, to rule out, or at, 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 at the very least, to uh, relativize the sorts of distractions uh, that often become part of our lives. So, for instance, um, to repeat a prayer, uh, even a brief one, you know, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner, so on and so forth, over and over and over again, has the effect of getting your mind on those phrases. Eventually, you know, they become a sort of subcognitive or, or maybe even a subconscious thing so that you are open to hearing from God in a fairly straightforward sense. So the point of prayer here is not to get what's inside your head out of your head so that God can see it, um, but instead it is to get your own head in order so that if God chooses to speak, you won't drown God out. Now, what Vey is talking about here, you know, in terms of prayer in relation to learning, uh, is the possibility that learning itself can be a form of that centering prayer. And we're going to be talking a, a good deal about, you know, how those two, you know, se seemingly, um, well, I mean, very different uh, practices uh, can actually be the same, you know, two instances of the same genus. Uh, but I, I think I'll cut it off there. David, I, I do want to ask you, I mean, when I think of the mystics, when I think of Marjorie Kemp, Julian of Norwich, you know, folks like that, St. John of the Cross, I think of those events as sort of divinely initiated moments of special revelation rather than moments of, I guess, prayer and spiritual discipline. Uh, am I missing something in that tradition? Have you read The Cloud of Unknowing? I've not. There you go. Okay. Um, the Cloud of Unknowing uh, is it's it's a Middle English work, and and there are other um, there are other medieval um, mystical works like that. I mean, the, the the mystics that you're citing are ones, uh, especially when you're talking about Kemp and Julian, Marjorie and, and Julian. It, you're 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 talking about folks who's. Uh, whose mysticism was centered around uh, a kind of divinely initiated intervention. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, there was the practice of the contemplative who didn't necessarily seek that experience, but saw it as something more like a direct experience of the kind of blissful, loving delight and union with God uh, that is experienced by the by the blessed in heaven to the degree that an imperfect human soul in this worldly life can have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cloud of unknowing, and and I'm, uh, I was recently kind of reacquainting it my, with myself with it, is it it talks about it in terms that are very much like what Vey is saying. Uh, it, it, he'll talk about uh, God being surrounded by this. Uh, ineffable transcendence which is like the darkness of a cloud and our human intellect cannot rise through the cloud the only thing that can rise through it is the desire of love and the the so the the contemplative uh, is disciplined to to focus uh, a, a kind of attentive desiring longing and uh, at that transcendence, you know, in an effort to to love the one beyond uh, beyond the ability to think about them, um, it's it's a really really interesting text. Uh, as as an evangelical Protestant, it is uh, very very different from anything uh, that my tradition holds up as as an ideal. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, it's 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 interesting as an exercise, uh, mainly in attempting to turn apophatic theology into a kind of devotional life. Um, if if the human right if the human reason um, 
can't actually grapple categorically in meaningful ways with the truth of God of 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 who God is in God's self, then how do we how do we pursue that? How do we pursue a relationship with that kind of God? And and cloud of unknowing is attempting to to conceive how to do that. Anyway, I I feel like Vey is kind of working in that in that tradition of how do you seek that one? Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add, Michael? Yeah, uh, one of the books I'm reading for profiles is Scott Cairns' uh, Short Trip to the Edge. And mm-hmm. Cairns is one of those Orthodox converts Nathan hates so much. <laughs> I didn't say that I hate them. I said that I irritate them. And, and these he, are these are different verbs. And he um, he he talks about um, he talks about the Jesus prayer doing exactly what Nathan is saying, which is you you repeat the Jesus prayer not to like conjure the presence of God, but to become aware that God is always present. Um, mm-hmm. So I, it's not like Jesus didn't hear you the first time, right? Right? Yeah, you're really in some ways talking to yourself with that prayer. You're you're trying to you're trying to block out everything that's not um, that's not divine presence and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace <laughs> right and I want to qualify that just a little bit I mean the logic of the spiritual discipline is that you have to be directed towards God for it to work if right. you treat it as you know a, a calisthenics then right. you're not you're missing the point but you're right Michael that you know you're also missing the point if you keep saying it, thinking, "Well, Jesus must not have heard it that time." I'll say it again. <laughs> well, and, and and this is one thing that J.D. Salinger's Franny and Zoe tells us, which is that if you're praying the Jesus prayer to somebody other than Jesus, it's going to drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And listeners, if you've got your uh, Christian humanist bingo cards out, drop that chip. I don't think Franny and Zoe's even on there. It should be. <laughs> nice. Well, Michael, we've been we've been alluding to attention, and I've been working up to this question: What exactly is attention? What on earth is she talking about? And can you sort out a coherent definition in this essay? No. Okay. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> yeah, um, because, and I know we're going to talk about this in a minute. One thing attention is not is like forcing yourself to pay attention to things. It, it seems to be an act that happens apart from human effort. And I, I will get to that in a minute. Um, I, I really, maybe, maybe what she's doing here is apophatic and that's why I'm having trouble coming up with a concrete definition of <laughs> attention, but it, I can tell you some things that it's not, but I'm not 100% sure I can tell you what it is, which is one thing. I'm not an apophatic person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, um, <laughs> that was itself an apophatic statement, I understand. Yeah, I, I caught it. I caught it. <laughs> I, I didn't until I said it. So, so I, like, I struggle with this essay specifically because she can't give me a program for paying attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I I really grappled with whether or not to even bring uh, present this to my students because I had such a difficulty in trying to wrap my brain around what exact what she was even attempting to argue we ought to be doing, you know. Um, I mean, it, I, I I have a couple of ideas that I that that I might pitch to see if they might work. I'm not entirely convinced, but. I mean, do you have anything you want to throw in before before that, Nathan? Oh, I'm sorry. I was playing on my phone. Uh, no, I wasn't really. Um, <laughs> um, that I've been funny. waiting to make that joke since you sent the show notes out. Um, one, of, one of the things that I would say about attention, and it, it's not really a definition so much as it is a description Mm-hmm. is that the way that uh, Vey treats attention is that it is a means rather than... No, strike that. Reverse it. It is an end rather than a means. So in mm-hmm. other words, if you are trying to pay attention for the sake of something beyond attention, you're missing the point. Uh, what you do, and we're going to be talking about this at some length too, and I, this this is one of those essays where you always have to say, yeah, there's another part that gets to that. We're talking about it later. Um but you discipline yourself to do the hard work of study 
but as you are doing it, you should not think that you are at that moment paying attention in the way that you're ultimately hoping to pay attention. Attention happens when your desires are so disciplined that you do the things that before you had to make yourself do because you want to. And in that way, I mean, it strikes me as a a very sort of purgatorial notion of attention. Um, This is something that uh, we are aware intelligibly is a possibility, even when we are not ourselves capable of it. And we do what we do knowing that it is a possibility, even though we have not experienced it as a memory. Does that, do those distinctions make some sense? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when we get to, uh, you know, the business about, you know, desire and study, uh, they talks about that as something that, you know, some people have achieved to a greater extent than other people. That doesn't let those other people off the hook. What it means is you need to get to the point that you have accomplished enough by hard work, which is not attention, so that you start accomplishing intellectual things because you want to do that, which is attention. Hmm. At least that's how I read it. I mean, I, if, I, if I am uh, missing it, I'd, I'd be glad to hear an alternative way to think on it. Hmm. I, I like that idea of, of training desire and, the, and, the, and that purgatorial idea. That, that's, I, I can latch on to that a little bit more than when she starts reminding me of the cloud of unknowing. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and of course, I mean, you know, since I made fun of Michael for his favorite, you know, mm-hmm. text to make reference to, of course, I just made a purgatory reference. So if you've got that space covered, uh, good job, listeners. Nice. Do either of you consider yourself mystics in any meaningful way? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Depends on how you define it. Um depends entirely on how you find it. I mean, I, I think in, in, you know, according to one definition, all Christianity is mysticism. Um, because, you know, we ultimately, you know, we're asserting, you know, I believe in the Holy spirit. Yeah. And you also know. since union and union with Christ is something that is both achieved and something for which we strive. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's eschatological and actual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that said, I mean, because I think of mystics as people who have received a revelation <laughs> that I have to receive by reading those people, right. I, I think of myself as in a community with mystics, but not myself a mystic. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think Frederick Buechner makes a point like that in Alphabet of Grace. Mm-hmm. Okay. When I talk to my students about this, I, I try, I, I've tried to... S- to, to figure out, okay, have I ever had an experience that I would categorize as something like what on earth she's talking about? And the closest that, that I could ever come and is the experience of getting lost in your reading. Where, when you're, especially, you know, for fi- fiction for me, but, you know, sometimes this has happened with nonfiction. When I get emerged uh, just uh, submerged in the reading to the extent that I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of where I'm at. I'm not thinking about the effort of reading. I'm just kind of in the text and, you know, for, for someone who reads a lot for pleasure, uh, that's a sign that it was a really good book and you seek out more books that, that, that give you that kind of experience. And, uh, it occurred to me, you know, to think as I was, you know, kind of wrestling with this essay, um, what if somebody feels that way when they're doing math? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's interesting just because I have, to such a large extent, internalized Philip Carey's book, Good mm-hmm. News for Anxious Christians. When I hear that, my first thought is, okay, you know, that's not divine revelation. That's just you enjoy math, and that's mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> right, 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 right. But it, but it occurred to me that what if, you know, if, if, if I can have this experience with a good novel, what if I could have that experience in other areas of learning, and I could see how that might be beneficial, um, but what if I had that experience while I was praying, while I was paying attention to God? Mm-hmm. Would, that, would, that, would that be the kind of thing that she's talking about? 
It's much easier to pay attention to the book, though. Although I have to say the transporting experience you're talking about, I haven't had reading for a very long time because I associate reading with doing my job. Right. Hmm. What about you, Nathan? I mean, is that is that a is that a uh, what you call a uh, occupational hazard of an English professor? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, when I do my reading of Dante every summer, um, I do tend to lose lose myself in that. But I, I like I said, I mean, it, it's largely because I have been formed by this strong distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Mm-hmm. I don't think of that as a mystical experience the way I think of, you know, a bleeding Christ on a crucifix appearing before Julian on her deathbed as mysticism. I mean, and yeah. I, you know, that that might be a, a category error on my part. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, I, I, I think of myself as a teacher who is part of a community that also includes visionaries and mystics. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't feel the need to be a mystic myself. I'm content to read about other people's mystical encounters and teach people about them. And, you know, um, you know, the whole, uh, romantic notion that you have to experience it in order to write about it. I've never really bought into that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've kind of wrestled with the idea of attention. So we need to, uh, I, I guess uh, tease out tease out the corollaries. Even even if we even if uh, ultimately we're going to have to be a bit apophatic about what on earth she's talking about. Mm. Um, we're often taught to play to our strengths, and that's something that they wants to steer us away from. She seems to disapprove of that sort of preference for subjects. In fact, she focuses on failure. So. What is her point in in this, and is this something that I should be pitching to my millennial students who all seem to believe in innate giftedness and the un the 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 lack of necessity to strive in areas where they are not gifted? <laughs> it's interesting when you uh, pitch that question. Uh, that's not the uh, millennial encounter I was thinking of. Okay. Uh, the one I was thinking of, and I've encountered this actually a few times this semester is when a student is entering into a field of study that they think of themselves as a a lover of that field of study. And, of course, in my case, that's the area of English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they have read their American novels with great ease and joy. Uh, they've, you know, they've wrestled with Shakespeare, but, you know, uh, still come away being able to enjoy the characters. Uh, and then I put in front of them, you know, uh, Immanuel Kant's, critique of judgment and they Hmm. say this looks like no text i've ever seen before and they're right uh and they have to struggle with it a lot of times what i see is uh students have this moment where they think oh no maybe i'm really not an english person because this is hard ah yeah okay and i i always have to tell them no i mean the point of discipline study is to take you places where you couldn't go on your own if you could get all this stuff on your own we'd be great frauds having an English department in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this department, this course of, you know, study is predicated on the conviction that there are things that are worthwhile to practice and to know that you can't get to on your own and you need the help of experienced practitioners to mm-hmm. help you into it. And that's why I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh when we all get together to have an English class, I'm the one who gets a paycheck. And it's not because I'm the best looking. It's not because I'm the tallest or the fastest. It's because this institution proceeds on the conviction that I can lead you into places that you can't get to on your own. Mm. That means that we are part of a tradition. That is why we have colleges and universities. And for that reason, the ethos of the university sort of militates against that. You know, sometimes we think of college classes as a sort of, you know, myth of Thuth from Plato's Phaedrus, right? You know, it's something that <laughs> you got a we do. list there, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's something that we do because, you know, somehow our own capacity to learn has failed. It's not that. I mean, it's that human traditions can learn better than human individuals. Now, to get back to Vey for a moment, the reason that she wants to focus on failure is not mainly for 
the sake of continuing th- the tradition of chemistry or educational theory or biblical hermeneutics or anything like that on its own. Instead, what she's interested in is the discipline, and again, this goes back to the difference that I see in this essay between discipline and attention. You discipline yourself to continue studying those things that are hard. You continue failing so that you can learn a sense of humility. And she has an interesting point here, and and it strikes me as a a definitively post-Miltonic point that she makes. And you guys can tell me if I'm completely full of beans here. You guys are never shy about that. She says that there is a sort of pride that you can take in being evil. But on the other hand, there's nobody who takes pride in being stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So she says if you focus on the times that you have failed academically, you learn real humility because there's no chance you're going to take pride in your failures. Mm -hmm. And so all of these sorts of things, you know, flow together to the point where I think that, you know, David's turn in this question towards the millennial is precisely what we need because on one hand, his point stands that our students have this notion that I am a math person, therefore I don't need to study Dante, uh, or I am a business major, uh, so all of this, you know, writing stuff is pointless. Or, for that matter, I'm an English major. Why the heck should I study chemistry, right? Yes. Uh, Instead, (laughs) I I shouldn't let our people off the hook, should I? Instead, it's doing the things that are most difficult for you that stands to lead you into humility. Humility, therefore, leads to the possibility for that divine attention that she was talking about. Now, Michael, I've been rambling on for quite some time now. What would you add to that? It uh, It means we're doing them a spiritual service when we give them low grades. (laughs) <laughs> yeah or, or rather when they learn, earn uh, low grades and we refuse to to show them give them something else well not just the grades but the comments on their papers becomes a kind of uh, we, we, we become a kind of confessor who is uh, walking walking a student through uh, through the process of 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 penitence. Um, this is what went wrong. This is how it went wrong. Um, it made me think differently about, about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I re- that, uh, ended up being really good for me in the classroom when I taught this is that I went on a jag in praise of STEM subjects that would normally not have come out of my mouth because frankly I've I've t- I tended to have this notion when I was a student I am an English person so I'm going to do as little of everything else so that <laughs> I can then focus on my major and not have to know anything more and you know it, it was later in life that I came to appreciate um the the excellences of disciplines that weren't my own and the capacities uh, to, to, to excel in those subjects, which, um, which don't come easily to me. And so, so that I can kind of admire it from the outside in the way I, that I admire someone who can, you know, do a high dive with all of those, you know, twists and turns and, you know, not mm-hmm. kill themselves. Yeah. No, that, that that was one of the true blessings of my undergrad career is that uh, Phil Kennison, who I've talked about before on the show, mm-hmm. uh, whenever he had disciples and he had about, you know, half dozen or eight of us when I was in college, uh, when we talked to him around course registration time, uh, he would berate us if we signed up for the fluff, you know, gen ed core classes. He would say, no, you take the 400 level psychology, you take the mm-hmm. 400 level biology because... You need that intellectual challenge. From time to time, um, I've had colleagues who, um, when non-majors take those classes, tell them they should drop, and it it infuriates me. Mm -hmm. At least Mm -hmm. give them the chance to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, uh, among other things, you know, even if you fail, one, the humility thing, thank you, Simone, uh, but also... It helps to create. Uh, it, it helps to disabuse people, 
within one discipline of the inability to see and appreciate the challenge and the rigor in another discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's uh, there was something genuinely good about me looking at a chemistry textbook or, you know, w- whatever other kind of discipline out there that isn't mine and say, wow, I have no idea what you're doing that, you know, l- helps dispel for me um, the illusion that, I'm doing the tough, rigorous thing, and those people are in Candyland. Mm-hmm. You know, it's good for me. Well, Michael, not only does she pay attention to, fear, she also pays attention to effort, especially the value of effort, including the apparently unsuccessful effort. So, how is what she says not just a kind of coach's speech about hustle to the team that's losing well, well partly because she thinks hustle is the opposite of attention right she, mm-hmm. she contrasts attention with this thing that we assume is attention which is trying really hard to pay attention she mm-hmm. says that if you uh if you ask pupils and i assume she means um students and not like your eyes to uh <laughs> to, to pay attention what they'll do is look really hard like they're focusing for three or four minutes and they won't have remembered anything they actually read because apparently if you try to force yourself to pay attention it 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 keeps you from paying the sort of attention she wants to which is much closer as you said earlier to losing yourself in whatever you're doing mm-hmm. with that in mind i wonder if we should talk about um attention as as if it were a kind of grace that, mm. that this is not something that comes on the basis of our efforts it's something that is divinely given to us uh, through no uh, no particular merit of our own, I mean she doesn't make that argument, but that's um that's what I found myself thinking as I read through it mm-hmm. yeah I, I would only want to qualify that by saying that I think that the structures within attention is possible come to us as divine gifts, but we have the freedom as moral agents to reject the goods that they offer. Because I, I don't want to get to the point of, of you know, sort of a, uh, well, if I am not paying attention, it's not my fault, it's God's fault. Mm. Right, right, yeah. That this is, this is grace that's given to all of us if we'll accept it. It's not, this is not a Calvinist grace. Right, right. Uh, you know, <laughs> should, should I therefore text more so that grace may abound? By no means. <laughs> so the, the, this is this is kind of a this is this is more of a general human grace kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm down with that. I'm down with that. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I like about uh, that I like about her point is is when she talks about how effort can be rewarded in other areas that are completely unrelated to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really did like that point because it helped, um, it helps, uh, to, to reconceive of the notion of failure in the sense, in the sense that, um, in education, it's not just that we are attempting to get an excellent math person or an excellent English person or an excellent psychology person. Um, but we're also attempting to create excellent persons mm-hmm. and becoming that excellent person in another area might be at the cost of apparently fruitless effort in another. Um, and that goes back to that purgatorial thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it becomes another way of another way of valuing it. So Vey also thinks that paying attention, that this kind of attention will not only will will aid us in loving God, but also aid us in loving our neighbor. How do those how do those work, Nathan? Well, what I gathered, and, and again, you know, listeners, I mean, I hope that you've read this essay so you can kind of see that, you know, we are <laughs> drawing, you know, we we are connecting dots that move as you try to connect them. Yes. Um but from from what I I guess what I project out from what I read uh, is that studying can be something like the sacrament of Eucharist. And here's how. Uh, The bread and the cup on their own are not magical. 
Uh, you know, they don't have any powers to turn you into a a cow or anything like that. I don't know if anyone ever claimed that they did. But uh, instead, the practice of Eucharist brings us into disciplined practices of sharing a table where we're all sitting on the same level. So especially in moments like um, our own, frankly, uh, where you go to the church that matches your income level, education level, ethnic background, so on and so forth, and you can do so because you've got automobiles. Eucharist stands to be, although it doesn't have to be, a subversive moment that reminds us that we are around the same table, not only with Christ, but also with the poor church in that part of town. Mm. I think that when Vey talks about study as a kind of sacrament, it's the same kind of thing. It's not as if algebra... Uh, has any sort of you know secret key to give you the hidden name of God? This is not the movie Pi, uh, <laughs> but although I love that movie, I should go ahead and say that. Uh, but instead, it is a sacramental discipline uh, in attending to that which doesn't, on its face, demand that kind of attention. Uh, and that's where I mean it really does come into that matter of spiritual discipline. So the way that Vey seems to imagine it. Uh, is that, you know, paying close heed to your Latin lessons uh, makes you into the sort of soul who is more likely to pay heed to the particularities and the complexities of your neighbor, Mm -hmm. just as uh, confronting the ultimate mystery of subatomic structure makes you into the sort of person who doesn't think that your Trinitarian formula gets at the real heart of the the, the uh, imminent trinity. There we go, I almost flipped those terms. Uh, but instead, it makes you realize that the formulas that you are using are good because they do offer you a kind of knowledge, but they are a kind of knowledge in a universe that has lots of other possible kinds of knowledge and therefore always eludes you even as you are still responsible to seek it out. Now, I, you know... Listeners, I want you to go read it so that you can tell that I just added a whole bunch of material to it. Uh, <laughs> but I really do kind of see those connections happening in what Vey is doing here. I, I, David, I mean, uh, is there anything in the essay that I'm skipping that I should add to that picture? Well, before I go, Michael, any th- any any takes on this one? No, I don't think so. I think Nathan Nathan has a lot of interesting things to say there. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree too. But uh, wrestling with this essay is, uh, is is one of the things that I, I enjoy doing. One of the reasons why I invited, uh, why I pitched this as a topic, was to invite you guys to wrestle with me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like in, cer- in a certain kind of sense that wrestling with this essay is like wrestling with an angel until it blesses you. <laughs> And but that's also the whole point of Vey's notions of of effort and all the rest of it is is wrestle till re- wrestle till you get the blessing. But it's a per- but you must wrestle in such a way that you will win. Wrestle is not hustle. Um, but yeah. But back to the loving God and loving neighbor. I like I like the idea of you know training your mind to. Uh, to have a kind of of reverent but still uh, passionate interest in in that transcendent mystery that lies beyond the cusp of our uh, the cusp of, the cusp of our conception and and training ourselves for that wonder um, in the in in more mundane subjects. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I can see how having a small imagination. Um, having a small palette of desire um, can can lead to having a small devotion. Mm. Um, in the same way that you know someone who's only eaten you know eggs, bacon, and hamburgers all their life uh, is going to have no idea what to do when you drop them off in an Indian restaurant. <laughs> uh, which is more like uh, a fireworks show of spices than it is, you know, do you want ketchup or do you want mustard? Um, so, yeah, that, that training of the palate for the love of God with, ac- with academic discipline. 
but also uh, also the paying attention to the neighbor. I like the way you brought that in too. Um, that that there is a kind of particularity to persons is one of the things that she emphasizes that your that that your neighbor in need is not just a member of a category of neighbors in need, but there is also a uh, a particularity to that person that that must also be attended to. And you know, I don't know. Maybe you get this one in 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 biology when you when you move from the most uh, large groups of you know species and genera all the way down to um, the particulars of the individual. Um, I don't. I, I I would be interested to see what all right. What exactly? What studies are going to help me love my neighbors in what ways? Is uh, kind of an interesting thought. Mm-hmm. Well, we're rounding out uh, this particular episode. Uh, in poking around the internet, as I was kind of thinking through uh, what questions to formulate, I found a number of folks who were writing about this essay. Um, the one that best summed up my impression is uh, by Fred Sanders. It's uh, it's at the um, uh, Tory's old scriptorium blog. Uh, and he writes of, uh, about this essay, this is strange stuff, but I'm convinced there's something in it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So what do you guys think? Uh, we'll start with Michael. Uh, is they offering something that a Christian humanist uh, can value for life or vocational or other kind of calling? Well, I think so for reasons we've already talked about, but this essay makes me nervous because it seems to suggest that what you study is not as important as the fact of studying. Yeah. And and I I worry that that will, in some hands, lead to disciplines being um, undervalued you know if, if one of the one of the reasons that that humanities folks have typically given for why you should study the humanities is it shapes the way you think and things like that and and if all of a sudden what matters about study is the attention you get to pay for it well why should anybody have to take a literature class it doesn't do anything mm-hmm. for us that we can't get done in a in a chemistry class because really the important thing here is the fact of paying attention not what you're paying attention to and that um, that makes me a little nervous now maybe i'm misreading her i don't know um because because it doesn't seem like that would be something she would say but at the same time it seems Mm -hmm. like that's what she's saying did that make you guys nervous too well, I, I, the sense that I got, and I mean, now that you say that, I, I think that is a way that you could read it. The way that I read it was you shouldn't specialize to the point where you say, I am a chemistry person, and therefore, because literary criticism is hard, I don't need it. Yeah. I mean, I saw her as advocating a broad spectrum of study, precisely because if you study broadly enough, eventually you're going to get to something you're really bad at. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's, that's true, and I like that part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, one of the th- I mean one of the things that that I think she's tapping into, and I didn't bring this up earlier. Um, it helps too to have read uh, Bernard's essay or uh, Bernard's yeah essay, little book, whatever, on loving God, because uh, she's I, I think she's working with that within that tradition too. Uh, Bernard talks about different levels of loving God, but the um, one of the the highest level, if I remember correctly, is when you you love not only is your love focused on God, but you love other things for the sake of God, because mm. God made them, and because in loving them you are also loving God. And she seems to have that kind of sort of ascetic mystic zeal animating her like you know loving math is not about loving math it's about loving god mm-hmm. right and if and if you just stop by saying i'm a math person um you're allowing your loves to be occupied um to be uh co-opted by the lower things um when you should be directing them ultimately at these kinds of higher things um and that can end up in a kind of uh, contempt for the world that just edges over into simple sin- sinful human contempt mm-hmm. um, yeah I, I mean 
I hadn't thought about it that way, Michael. But um, I mean, I think that could be. I think you're right. That could be a that could be a, a way that this this could misfire. Mm. Nathan. Well, I read uh, Fred Sanders' little piece, and like I said earlier, I, I think that the Miltonic is kind of what he's missing in Vey's argument here, because he, mm. he says, you know, what I can't understand is this notion of, you know, a sense of pride in being sinful. Um, and, and, and first of all, I mean, you know, obviously, evil be thou my good in book four of Paradise Lost is what I immediately think of, because, you yeah. know, well, I mean, one of my dissertation chapters was on it. But then beyond that, you know, I mean, if you think about uh, meme culture, on Twitter and Facebook, uh, you know, I, I don't have either of those open right now, but I imagine right now I could open one, and within a matter of minutes, if not seconds, I could find someone posting something along the lines of, I'm proud of how vengeful I am. If you mess with me, I'm going to mess you up, or if you treat my friends badly, I'm going to break your nose, or, you know... Uh, I'm proud of how much I think about sex or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, I, I, I think that that's definitely a modern phenomenon. So, I mean, Vey's point, I don't know if it would be as salient in the first century as it is now in the 21st century, mm-hmm. but I do think it's a valid point for our moment. The other thing, uh, and this is about Vey more generally is I think that, uh, her tendency to, uh, make cloudy, uh, what our institutions tend to put into very defined silos is good medicine for us. Uh, mm. Because, again, I'm, I'm thinking about this right now because, you know, I just recently I helped a bunch of uh, students, you know, sign up for their fall classes. And they do tend to think of their social science and their lab science and their humanities as basically boxes to check off and let's check it off with the minimal effort and so on and so forth. And I think that Vey's thought here that it is encountering that which you don't have a natural that might actually lead you to humility is just really, really good medicine for our own moment. Not only for the students who are looking for the easy A, but also for those students who hit something difficult and say, well, that's not who I am, so I'm going to quit doing it. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, what, what I love is... And, and I think this is a, a variation of what you were just saying, Nathan, is that she really camps out on what I know for me growing, uh, growing up and even today, uh, it, it comes off as a joke when you say it, um, whenever, you know, something, you know, something would be tough and your parents say, well, you know, it'll build your character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and that, and that comes off as, as kind of a euphemistic, yeah, this is going to be tough and you're just going to have to deal with it. Right. Um, but she settles down in that, in, in, in that idea and says, what, what if that's true? What if it actually really is good for you in these particular and even kind of ultimate ways um, to get in over your head? With uh, you know a, a a subject with which you have no aptitude, mm-hmm. what it you know, and that's uh, I I like I like the coming back to that cliche and and reinvigorating it. Um, I, I think is useful. Although we should take a moment here and say that this is a frightening and radical and dangerous thing to say in the 21st century when our students know full well that unemployment could wait for them on the other end of that graduation stage right. to say that to them, you should wager that possibility on the possibility of getting a bad grade in something you're bad at instead of taking the easy class. Right. I mean, that that is in some ways, you know, asking students to take up their cross and follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I say that, you know, obviously realizing I'm, I'm paraphrasing the New Testament there. But just to remind ourselves that uh, that's not intended to be an easy word. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm guessing, though, that that she, she does not accompany this with a rigorous defense of the high cost of institutional higher education. <laughs> right. Oh, I imagine so. I imagine so. <laughs> but I'm just saying when we translate it into our moment, that's a variable that's that we've got to take into account. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and we can't just sort of say, and all of you Christian students should also feel bad <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for not wanting to take the classes because you will love God less, therefore. Yeah, I actually do say that, but I'm a, I'm a sociopath that way. <laughs> okay. All right. Excellent. Well, uh, this has been fun for me, gentlemen. I hope it's been uh, at least uh, at, le- at least some kind of in- interesting and enjoyable for you. I know this is not uh, this is not necessarily ordinary end of semester fare for us. Um, I mean, we could have talked about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or whatever, but um, <laughs> you know, that it's it's stuff that's been on my mind, and I've enjoyed the conversation. Good. Well, in the meanwhile, uh, what's, uh, what future can we forecast for uh, summer and beyond, I guess? Uh, honestly, David, I haven't even given a thought to the first summer episode. I realize that I'm going to be at the helm, but uh, <laughs> end of semester. End of semester, that's all I can say. Uh, if it is a text we're going to be reading together, which I, I imagine it might be, because that's the kind of episode I like to take the helm for, uh, I'll be sure to announce it on the Facebook page and possibly on the blog so that our listeners can uh, read up and uh, jump in with us. Excellent. Well, so the, the summer of the Christian Humanist podcast is buried within a deep cloud of apophatic unknowing. Mm-hmm. And so, dear listeners, if you want to batter against that cloud with your desirous love or email, um, send it to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, post it on our Facebook wall, or uh, in the show notes to this particular episode when it posts at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Humanist Radio Network is uh, the place where you'll find the Christian Humanist podcast. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Amberly Copeland. I'm David Grubbs on behalf of Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore, leaving you with good advice from Martin Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.